Right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we, uh, where we are. Why everywhere? Why everywhere? That's my title this morning. And I'm particularly going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from verses 14 to 17. We'll get there in, in, in just, a, just a moment. Why everywhere? Well, we're, we're sort of on, on the, the, the bottom end, as it were, of of our series on making disciples, and there are the four questions that we have covered so far during the service, uh, the series. Uh, why make disciples? What is a disciple? How we make disciples? Who makes disciples? And as we come to this question this morning, uh, where do we make disciples? We, we started that last week, and I want to dig a little deeper into it this morning. Where do we make disciples? And if we were to ask the question, where do we make disciples, and you were to sum it up in one word, you would use the word, you were all paying attention to the title, weren't you? Nice one, Bob, I saw that. Everywhere, everywhere, we could say that we ought to make disciples everywhere. We could put it like this, we ought to make disciples there in the nations, and we're to make disciples here in the nations, there and here. When Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, he didn't just say, uh, go and do it in Mozambique. He didn't just say, go and do it in Pakistan. He didn't just say, go and do it in Tanzania. He said, go and do it where? In the nations in, in Australia, in the nations in Busselton. The nations are everywhere, therefore we make disciples Everywhere, wherever they are. There was, a, uh, there was a time, I think, in Christendom, and it may still be in certain pockets today, that, that to go and make disciples means that you forsake absolutely everything and you only go to the farthest places in the world. I grew up in an era like that. Uh, there were some very famous missionaries, for example, who took these words from Jesus very seriously, and they forsook all, and they went. Um, they took these words up from Jesus in, in Luke 14, in the same way Jesus said, those of you who do not give up everything, uh, you cannot be my disciples. There was a famous English missionary by the name of C.T. Studd. He gave up fame, he gave up fortune to become a missionary, uh, both to India and to China. And I was reading one of the biographers, and this is what they said about him. He said, when he went to Africa, he left his wife and adult daughters for about two years during the first trip. But then he left his wife again and again. And during the last 10 years of their lives, he only saw her once for about two weeks. The father, the father of missions, William Carey, uh, Incredible missionary, 4th of April, 1793. This is what one biographer said. Uh, 4th of April, 1793, William Carey abandoned his pregnant wife and two little children and boarded the Oxford on the Thames to begin his voyage to India. You see, God used both of these men in, in, in fantastic and great ways. But there was this sense that when it came to me making disciples, you, you sort of had to leave everything here and go over there. And even your family was expendable when it came to missions. I grew up in an era where, where mission conferences were all the rage, and I used to go to one every single year. And we were exhorted every single year to get up, 
and go. And somehow when you sat there and you didn't get up and go, you somehow felt guilty. And, and it was very common for the missionaries that were back on furlough or field of, back on home assignment, whatever. They sort of really let you know how much they gave up in order to go. But on the flip side of that, you often hear comments like this. In a mission discipleship-making context, you often hear something like, charity begins at home. Meaning that it needs to be here more than over there. In other words, it's not there that's more important. It's here that's more important. So we, we need to begin here. So which one is more important? There or here? When I ask you that question, it's a little bit like trying to rank the following that's coming up on the screen. I'm going to put some things up on the screen. I'm going to give you about 10 seconds, and I want you to grade them in terms of biblical ranking. We'll get to that question in a moment. So have a look at these. All right? Have a look at those, right? Dog, Jesus, self, work, recreation, sport, church, spouse, and kids. Take 10 seconds. I was going to get some water, but there's none up here. All right? Um, Get 10 seconds and just quickly uh, rank them. Here we go. Go on. Just do it in yourself. Talk out loud. Talk to the next one next to you. I don't know. All right. Husband and wife confer. Go one, two, and three. All right. You all figured it out, right? Now, I took a little bit of liberty of doing a generalization of what it might look like for some. Actually, I'll give you another five seconds because my award, that wasn't actually a, a request, uh, Trace, but anyway, thank you. <laughs> I just love the service in this church, beautiful. All right, so I took a bit of a liberty this morning and. Um, and uh, Here's how I think, generally speaking, you may argue with me a little bit about which one's first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, but it probably looks like this for most of you over here. <laughs> Any amens out there? Okay, here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem when you start to rank, the problem is there is no such thing as biblical rankings when it comes to these things. Let me ask you this. Where in the Bible does it say your spouse is more important than your kids? Does it say that? I'm not sure if this happens that much anymore, but I, I can remember a time when, when medical advance was not as great where... where where there were difficult pregnancies and you would often hear something like, well, the decision needed to be made. Do you save the mother or the child? Now, I want to ask you something. If you were the father, if you were the husband in that situation and you were asked to make a call, who do you save, wife or child? Which one would you make? Whose life is more important? Where does it say in the Bible that your physical family is more important than your spiritual family? Where does it say that? You see, the problem is when you start to rank, and if you start to put your physical family over your church family, what happens is, is that your church family would absolutely suffer every single time you needed to make a choice, right? 
Let me give you one just little example. You see this all the time in Christian families, and you hear a conversation like, my family, whether Christian or non-Christian, they're coming over from Queensland, or they're coming down from Perth, they're coming to visit, they just happen to be coming on a Sunday. I'm not coming to church because I need to be with my family, spend time with the family. Uh, one of the big buzzwords today in, in pastoral circles is the word self-care, self-care. I think I've been to the last six conferences, and all they're telling me is self-care, self-care. You need to look after yourself, pastor, so that you can look after the sheep, right? Now, that is not a bad thing to do. But if I start ranking my self-care above everything else, I'm going to happen to have a very distorted picture. So, there's what the picture should look like. You see, all the aspects of our lives are important. And it is Jesus and his kingdom that are to influence all of our lives. Some of you are realizing there's no dog on there, right? <laughs> Actually, I've just seen that myself. <laughs> Heck, my, oh. Anybody have me for lunch, please, afterwards, because I'm going home. Um, but the issue is that Jesus is the hub, right? Jesus is the hub, and, and we want his kingdom, and we want him and his kingdom to influence every single area of our lives. And I do want to say to you that it, it does take a lot of wisdom and decision-making to navigate these various things, right? So the quick, back to our question, is there or here more important? There or here? The answer is yes. Now, isn't that annoying? Have you, ever, have you ever asked somebody, would you like a cup of tea or coffee, and they say yes? Isn't that so annoying? Why? Because you can't have both, right? Unless you're weird, you can have both, yeah. There or here, the answer is yes, because we can do both, and we should do both, and we should do it all of the time. And it's into this little space that I want to, to drill this morning. And if you've got your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, 15, 16, and 17. Let me read them to you. Let me get you in there, and then you're going to see where I'm drilling with this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And that's the key verse. I'm going to come back to it in a moment. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Now, remember my title, Why Everywhere. Why Everywhere. That's where I want to go. Why must we make disciples everywhere? Why is it here and there and both and everywhere all at the same time? And here there, one is not more important than the other. Have a look at verse 16. And I want you to look at what Paul is saying. Here's the question to ponder. How do you evaluate people? How do you judge people? Through what lens do you judge people? And the second question is related, how do you judge Christ? How do you view Christ? What lens do you use when it comes to evaluating Jesus? And look at verse 16, what is Paul saying? He's saying we don't evaluate, judge, view people through a 
worldly lens. We don't judge, evaluate Jesus through a worldly lens. Let me unpack this a little bit for you. You might remember the Apostle Paul who wrote this. You might remember that Paul used to be Saul. And when he was Saul, he was a thoroughbred Dinkum Jew. And he used to evaluate people and he evaluated Christ through a worldly lens. Let me show it to you. Back in Philippians chapter 3, he says this. This is Philippians 3 verse 4. If anyone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness, based on the law, I was faultless. Now look at this carefully. Here's what Paul is saying. Here's how I used to view people. I used to see them either Jew or non-Jew. I used to see them as circumcised or non-circumcised. I used to see them as part of Israel, not part of Israel. I used to evaluate even Israel on which tribe they came from, Judah or Benjamin. I, 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 I evaluated people on their religiosity. I was, I was a Pharisee, not a, not a Sadducee. He used to evaluate people on their zealousness for keeping the law. In other words, Paul says that when he, what he used to do, he used to judge people on religious, moral, racial, national, ethnic grounds. And because of all these worldly distinctions that he used, he thought he was better than everybody else. And when it came to the kingdom of God, when it came to being saved, he thought, well, because I've got these criteria, these are the things that will secure me a place in the kingdom of God. This was salvation by Jewishness. And that's why Paul viewed Jesus through a worldly lens. Because Saul thought he was saved by Jewishness, he just saw Jesus as some sort of Jewish wannabe human Messiah that was leading people away from Jewishness. He saw Jesus as some sort of pathetic figure, died on a cross. Who cares? He actually deserved to die because of his blasphemy of, being, of calling himself the Son of God and leading people away from being Jewish. In fact, if the Apostle Paul had been standing in the crowds the day that Jesus died, he would have been crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That was the worldly lens through which Paul saw people and Jesus. Now, same passage, verse 7, look at this. Look at the change. Look at the change in lens through which Paul views people and Christ. He says, but now whatever were gains to me, all that stuff we just spoke about, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So what Paul is saying is now that he has met Jesus, the risen Christ, who happened to introduce himself from heaven itself, he says, everything's flipped over. I can no longer view people through a worldly lens, and therefore I can no longer view Christ through a worldly lens. Now, I want you to see this lens, and I want you to see it clearly this morning. Back to our passage. See if you can see the lens in verse 15, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who 
died for them and was raised again. Can you see the lens? Can you see it? Let's go down to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Did you pick up the lens? What Paul is saying is there are really only two types of people in the world. There are those who live for themselves and those who live for Christ. Or there are those who are old creations and those who are new creations. Those are the only two types of people in the world. But let me pull this lens a little wider into the biblical framework. Here are the two types of people in the world. If you could get my face off that uh, for a moment, Marcus. Here are the two types of people. A person is either guilty, unforgiven, unsaved, dead in sin, judged, condemned, lost, hellbound, cursed, wicked, and an old creation, or they are pardoned, forgiven, saved, alive in Christ, justified, converted, found, heaven-bound, blessed, righteous, and a new creation. Those are the only two types of people in the world. As you sit here this morning, you are either one or the other of these two people. And every other person on the planet, in and around you, wherever they are, here, there, and everywhere, they are one of these two types of people. You might be sitting here, you might be black or white, you might be pink or brown, you might be South African or Australian, you might be rich, old, or somewhere in the middle, you might be vaxxed or unvaxxed, you might have a year 10 education or a, or a PhD, you might be a doctor, a dentist, or a shelf packer, an unemployed mom, you might be male, female, you might be religious, unreligious, they have absolutely no bearing on these two things. You are one or the other. And, and, and all of those distinctions that I've just made, they have absolutely no bearing on your standing before God. And they have absolutely no bearing on your standing as a child of God. Why? Because all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore the wages of death is for all, because all sin. The soul that sins, it will die, said Ezekiel. Hebrews 9, 27, it is destined for man once to die and then to face the judgment. There are absolutely no exceptions. There are no ethnic, national, social, economic, gender, political passes on this one. I don't know if it was this week, this last week or the week before, it was a wonderful thing that our emperor, Emperor Mark McGowan, He's been elevated in status from supreme to, you know, up there. And uh, it was a wonderful thing that he finally granted an exemption for someone in the eastern states to come over and visit his dying mother. It was a great exemption. However, there are no exceptions to the wrath of God that faces every man, woman, and child because every man, woman, and child sins. And you need to know this morning, you've got to know that this this thing is being skewed in so many different ways today. But let me just give you one example. Do you recognize this face? Do you recognize him? His name was Larry King. Larry King, he is a famous, he was a famous TV host, obviously in America for, for some 40 odd years, and he was Jewish. 
In an interview while he was alive, he interviewed a pastor from a mega church called Joel Osteen. And in this interview, he asked Joel Osteen, here was the question, whether Jews and Muslims must believe in Christ to go to heaven. And here was Joel Osteen's answer. He said, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. In another interview with Larry King and, and, and a pastor, evangelical pastor, John MacArthur, in an off-the-air comment, Larry said to John MacArthur that he is exempt from the wrath of God because another pastor told him he was okay because he was a Jew. You see, several mainline denominations today support what is known as a, a, a two-covenant theology, which holds that Judaism and Christianity are both sort of valid, divine paths to God. In 2002, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops released a document called Reflections on Covenant and Mission and said, quote, Jews already dwell in a saving covenant with God. That is back to Saul. It is Pharisaic Judaism saying that there is some sort of ethnic category in which you could be that would save you from facing the wrath of God on sin. Let me give you a quote. I won't tell you who it is because you'll know who it is. This is from the most famous evangelical missionary evangelist ever. Here's what he said, quote, I believe that God has always had a special relationship with Jewish people, as St. Paul suggests in the book of Romans. In my evangelistic efforts, I have never felt called out to single out the Jews as Jews, nor to single out any other particular groups, cultural, ethnic, or religious, end quote. And yet, and yet the Apostle Paul himself says this in Romans 10 verse 1. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. So let me make this just a little bit closer to home and personal for you. Let me see if I've got this picture. We'll come back to that one. There are two categories of people. Let's put it this way. There are those that are all out of Christ or those that are all in Christ. You're either all out or all in. And there are absolutely no exceptions. Every single person on the planet whether Jewish or Muslim, agnostic or atheist. It applies to every single person in your family, from your children to your parents, to your siblings, to your friends, your work colleagues, next door neighbor, and everyone else in between. It applies to your children. I, I, know, I'm pre I, I know that I'm speaking to the converted, but I, uh, our children are not born Christians, are they? They don't become Christians because they're infant baptized or dedicated. They don't, they're not Christians because they grow up in a Christian family with Christian parents. They are not saved because they grow up in a covenant community. They are, they, they are born outside of Christ. They face the wrath of God because of who they are, sin, and because of what they do, sin. You hear comments, things like this. Oh, so-and-so is such a good bloke. 
Or such and such a person did such wonderful things for humanity. Or, you know what? There are non-Christians who are even kinder than Christians. All these sort of worldly distinctions mean nothing when it comes to salvation because all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Have a look at this picture. Do you think that any of these people get an exemption? Do you think they get a pass? Because they're prime ministers or they premiers? Do you think any of them get a pass? How about these guys? Because they've been the president of the United States of America. Do you think they get a pass when it comes to standing before the wrath of God? So go back to our passage. How do we go from all out to all in? Or put it this way, what is it that takes us from all out to all in? Have a look at the passage. What takes us from all out to all in? Have a look at verse 14. It's pretty obvious. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. How about verse 15? And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Do you see it? How, do, how is it that we can go? What, what makes it possible to go from all out to all in? It's only through the gospel, isn't it? It's only if you're guilty, unforgiven, unsaved, dead, judged, condemned, lost, sinner, hellbound, cursed, wicked, and old creation, the only way that you can go to pardon, forgiven, saved, alive, justified, converted, found, saint, heaven-bound, blessed, righteous, and a new creation, the only way is through faith in the gospel. You see, when it comes to seeing Jesus from a worldly perspective, it's to see Jesus as somebody that may have had some sort of historical importance, but had no life and death saving significance. To see Jesus worldly is to see Jesus like many Muslims and Jews do. Well, he was just one of the prophets. It's to see Jesus worldly is to see Jesus like Mahatma Gandhi did when he said, quote, Jesus was one of the greatest teachers of mankind. To see Jesus worldly is to see Jesus like Richard Dawkins does, the, the aggressive atheist, when he says, on the balance, quote, on the balance of probability, according to most but not all scholars, suggests that Jesus did exist, end quote. To see Jesus from a worldly point of view is to see Jesus as still dead, is to see Jesus as some sort of created being, either at his creation or by the Father before the world began. To see Jesus worldly is to see Jesus as some sort of super-duper miracle worker, as so many in the Gospels do. As people do today when the miracle crusades come along from time to time and some sort of TV evangelist gets up and says, well, Jesus is just some sort of genie in the bottle, and if you rub him hard enough, he'll give you what you want. To see Jesus from a worldly perspective is to see Jesus as the universal Savior, that everybody will be saved regardless of what they believe. Bishop 
Colton Pearson was a once beloved evangelical minister in the United States. And in the late 1990s, he radically changed his message to his flock. He said that God had spoken to him and said, and, 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 and Pearson insisted that God said that people do not need to accept Jesus to be saved and go to heaven. In fact, quote, God's love has already guaranteed that everyone will enter through the pearly gates, end, end quote. There's a movie on Netflix called Come Sunday, which shows the life of this guy and what happened. Well worth the watch. But another way to see Jesus through a worldly lens is to see that somehow you could do some worldly thing and add it to his cross for salvation. That somehow we could do some sort of worldly thingy in order to add to what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. In the New Testament, Paul was always fighting the false Jewish teachers. They were coming along and saying, you've got to add some sort of Jewish thingy onto the, onto the cross. In Galatians, it was circumcision. In Acts 15, it was you weren't allowed to eat certain foods. Today, it goes on and on and on. You've got to be water baptized. You've got to be a member of a particular church. You've, you've, got, to be, uh, you've got to do some sort of good work. You've got to go to mass. You've got to go do some sort of religious thingy. You've just got to be better. You've just got to be gooder. You've just got to try and be gooder than you were. And you know what happens, brothers and sisters? If you miss this and you lose this, it's so easy to slip into seeing people and Jesus through worldly lens. And when we do that, you know what happens to the gospel? You stop speaking it. You stop speaking it because you think there's a special category of people. Or you think that Jesus just did it all. It didn't really matter what he did on the cross. That's when we get like frozen at the mouth like Arctic and we say nothing. And then what happens is when the gospel goes down, we speak nothing. The church just becomes like some sort of insular henpen where all we do is we flutter our feathers trying to get our personal preference and place and comfort. Let me put up that picture again. Can you see it? The only way you go from there, any way you go from there to there, is through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ received by repentance and faith. Let me start to uh, bring this home. I want you to have a look at this picture. It's one that we've looked at a number of times over the weeks from the Vine Project. And that's where the nations are, right? That's where most of the nations are. They're in the domain of darkness. They're in a place without light, without life, without hope. Most of the people in your life are there. Most of the people in your family are probably there. Most of the people at your work, they're there. Most people at university, they're there. Most of the people you work with at work, they're there. Most of your neighbors, they're there. 
We want them there, don't we? Is that where we want them? How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? BBC, can we be those beautiful feet? Those beautiful feet that bring good news here and there. Whether it's here or there, we're going, supporting, we're sending to the nations out there, to the nations here, to the nations out there, to the nations in our family, in our workplace, our unis, our sport places, in our, even in our own church. We make disciples wherever we are. We be the beautiful feet of those who bring news, good news, because all the nations, wherever they are, are in a domain of darkness, and we want them into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of glory, Look at the picture again. We're here, right? And I've spoken to you about that learner thing for the last few weeks, but did you pick up who we are in Christ in chapter in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17? Did you, did you see what we are? Anybody, can anybody remember? What are we? We are new creations. So yes, it's, it's about being beautiful feet to those in darkness, but it's also about being beautiful feet to one another, and we're, we're new creations in Christ. Can we start to see each other that way? Can we start to, we, I know we're a brother and sister and that sort of lost something along the, the familiarity of that's lost something somewhere. We are new creations as a brother or sister. Can I see you as a new creation? Can you see me as a new creation? Can you see who we are in Christ? And what that means is that then we will start to, to nudge and exhort and encourage and move one another more and more to the right, more and more to that likeness in Jesus to be more of the new creations that we are already. Can we can we be those beautiful feet there, whatever that looks like to those in darkness? Can we be beautiful feet to those who are here that are in darkness? And can we be beautiful feet to one another, to those of us together that are new creations in Christ, encouraging one another to be more and more of that which we are in Christ? And I dare say this morning that there may be one, maybe two, who knows. That you sit here this morning, you walked into the service, and you are guilty, unforgiven, unsaved, dead in your sin. You are judged, you are condemned, you are lost. You're hellbound, you're cursed, you're wicked, you're an old creation. 
And Jesus says to you this morning, come. Come. Turn to me. Believe in what I did. I died for you. I rose for you to pay the penalty as we sung earlier to satisfy the wrath of God, the wrath of the Father on our sin. And through faith in Jesus, we'll be pardoned, forgiven, saved, alive in Christ, justified, converted, found saints, heaven-bound, blessed, righteous, and a new creation. Would you come? My uh, most common word last week, if you were here, was the word obvious. Why everywhere? It's obvious. Let's pray. Father, by your Son, through your Spirit, would it be this morning that our understanding has grown of what it means to view people in the way you do, that we would not see Jesus and we would not see people through a worldly lens, but through a gospel lens, a Bible lens, death and resurrection lens. That our hearts would be stirred to be those beautiful feet to those in darkness there, to those in darkness here, and to be beautiful feet to one another who are new creations in Christ. Let's stand.